the serpent of Eden? Smooth-talking tree snake or the big bully of the garden? Stick around. Let's talk about it. Houston, we have a problem. Habemos papan. Podcasting from a parking lot in the Woodlands, Texas, it's the Catholic Hack with Joe McLean. Take this, all of you, and eat it. This is my body, which will be given up for you. 1 Peter 3.15. Always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks you for a reason for your hope. Take this, all of you, and drink from it. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. It will be shed for you and for all, so that sins may be forgiven. The Church of the Living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. 1 Timothy 3.15 Do this in memory of Welcome back to the Catholic Hack. I'm Joe McLean, and this is episode number 51. Today, I'm going to share with you some feedback that I've received, on, uh, which was a follow-up to a show I did about what the rock was cooking. And We talked a lot about salvation history. We talked a lot about the Old Testament types, the, the prefigurements to Christ, to our Blessed Lady, to the new creation that Christ brought about in his passion, death, and resurrection. And we're going to get into that today. Uh, I received some wonderful voice feedback on that, and I, and I want to make that the center of our conversation today. Before we get into that, I want to share with you some, uh, some feedback I received from a brand new listener, Wayne. Wayne writes, Dear Joe, I can't thank you enough for your impassionate inspiration in bringing us closer to our Father. You have become God's lightning rod, cutting through the man-made crap and exposing the true values of our Creator. What insight, what sincere passion. It's like finding the contents of the Ark of the Covenant with all this good news virtually exploding off of your tongue. Finding your podcast was a true act, if divine, intervention. I had been saving for an iPod and was just deciding on which one to get when I received a call from my older son who asked me for help to buy an airplane ticket for him and his wife to join us for Christmas. Well, it was an iPod or airplane tickets for my kid. For me, no-brainer. Family always comes first. Two months later, my wife and a younger son scraped up the money to get me the iPod I had been saving for. I was totally shocked. My kids showed me how to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. My first podcast was The Saint Cast, since my daughter and son-in-law were mentioned on the program for answering a challenge question. After exploring the selection, I came across your podcast. Wow, what a production, totally engaging, totally enlightening, and right on for me. I always told everyone we can't understand the Bible unless we understand the context in which it was written. In other words, what were the cultural beliefs of the time? When passages mention the things that make no sense to us people of today, they had a powerful message to the people of Christ's time. Your podcasts, which bridge the cultural gap, are among the best explanations of Scripture that I have ever heard. They certainly have a much better understanding of God's Word than any priest that I have ever talked to. I now find myself praying that God cares for you and your family, so you may continue to feed His flock with the spiritual food that we out here all long for. Your brother, Wayne. Wow, Wayne. (laughs) 
Thank you so much for taking the time to write that and send that in to me. That was very encouraging and, and um, wow, what a blessing. So thank God and praise God for you and for your family for recognizing this, this desire of yours to, to be in touch and, and with your faith and explore all this great new media out there. I like the St. Cast and like uh, the Rosary Army and, and uh, our Daily Breakfast and, and the Techno Priest and there's so many great Catholic podcast, the Vocations Cast with Mark out in, in Tennessee. What a podcast that is. There's so many great Catholic podcasts and you're exploring this and what a blessing that you've, uh, you know, considered the Catholic hack as part of your lineup. I'm truly honored by that. And as far as your comment about having not run into any priests who might know the, the, the scripture as good as I do, well, I've got news for you, Wayne. I call myself a hack for a very good reason. That's because I am one. I am a, a Bible hack. I'm a Catholic hack, to be sure. And I don't know anything. And so uh, if you think I'm good, I guarantee you, you're going to find some powerful priests out there who know this infinitely more than I do. And I am a sponge in a, I'm standing at their feet, soaking up all that I can. Great priests like Father Mitch Pacwa, like Father Karapi, like Father Philip Chavez, who will be a guest on this podcast. I recorded the interview uh, on Friday, and I'll be playing that coming up. So there are tremendous priests out there in your diocese, I'm sure of it. But in this country, to be sure, and in our beautiful Catholic Church, absolutely. These are wonderful priests who are so full of God's glory and his wisdom and his teaching. And uh, I'm just enjoying myself to learn from these great priests and basically just spitting it all back at you. That's what being a hack is all about. I represent the the average layman, the guy who sits in the pew on Sunday. And I, I want to emphasize to you that you don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't have to go to a school and, and get a 12-year education and spend all kinds of money. I, I got to be honest, I would love to do all that. But you know what? We can study the Bible. God has given us great tools in his beautiful Catholic Church. He has given us fundamental, fantastic, absolutely earth-shattering tools in his beautiful Catholic Church so that all of us laymen, all of us average men and women can soak up the scripture far more deep and profound than any quote-unquote Bible church that I've ever run into in my Protestant upbringing. And that's the beauty of the Catholic Hack podcast. That's what I want to share with you, the passion of learning and diving deep, becoming certified scripture divers in this Bible of ours. Diving deep, never never being satisfied with the surface, but diving deep. That's what this podcast is about, Wayne, and I think you've picked up on that, and I'm truly honored and blessed that you have shared that with me, so thank you very much. Thank you also for leaving a review on iTunes. I, I did see that this week. It, the, the reviews have been have really slowed down. Uh, I'm not sure if there's an iTunes issue, where because sometimes iTunes gets glitchy, but uh, Wayne's was the first one in, I think, a week and a half, two weeks. So, Wayne, thank you so much for that. We are getting very close. We are nearing the top of the second page on the iTunes web store for the featured Christian podcast list. And as I've stated, it is an unabashing or uh, I guess a, um, a shameless endeavor of mine to get this podcast up on the first page. I really want this to be one of the very first podcasts seen when someone goes to look for a Christian podcast 
on iTunes. Why? Because that's how we can reach other people, people who, who aren't necessarily looking for you know, Catholic podcasts. They're going to see this podcast as well as the Rosary Army, as well as the St. Cast and the other great Catholic podcasts. We need to evangelize. And that's a great way for you to support and evangelize is by supporting this podcast and by asking your friends and your family members to subscribe to this podcast and the other Catholic podcast through iTunes. Leave reviews on iTunes. That's how we get this up further in in the iTunes store. We need to be there, right along next to our, our Protestant brothers and sisters who are who are preaching the gospel. Well, we have the original gospel. The gospel originally handed to the first bishops. Jesus Christ founded but one church. That's the Catholic Church. Even St. Ignatius of Antioch in 110 AD calls it the Catholic Church. And so we need to be up there. We need to be preaching the gospel as handed to us by Christ Jesus and so that we can show our Protestant brothers and sisters that Catholics are not ignorant to Scripture, that we dive deep and we get so much out of it. And we can teach them a thing or two about the beloved book. At any rate, I think that's enough ranting and raving for me on that. I'd like to now share with you a voicemail I received this last week from a new listener out in Burlington, Wisconsin. I guess technically I don't know if he's a new listener. I don't even know his name. Unfortunately, you didn't leave your name, so I apologize for that. But this was a great piece of uh, voicemail. It gives us another opportunity to consider some very good points that he brings up and to dive deep again into one of my very favorite topics, one that I went into length on in the What the Rock Was Cooking episode there at Holy Week. So without further ado, let's roll up our sleeves. Let's dive deep and get back into the truth about the Garden of Eden. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! This fool when I sit, even just a little bit, I get hit with the power that made the veil in the temple split. When I submit, fall on the floor and adore. Can't get enough, got to come back for some more. Hey, we've got a problem here. Sinner, every woman in the creek can benefit in this school. Dive, dive, dive. Joe McLean, how you doing, buddy? Hey, just finished up your uh, latest podcast. I'm glad to hear had something on. It's just you, not a, another interview. It's good to break it up once in a while. I would like to talk to you a little bit about, uh, you know, your treatment of Adam, you know, with the whole thing with the coward. I thought he was a little rough on him. You know, I always visioned uh, Adam and Eve were in the garden and, and Satan kind of snuck in there waiting for the right opportunity moment for him to separate him or get him separated when, you know, Adam's off fetching some water or getting something to eat, or maybe he went off to use the bathroom, and, you know, he's known as the deceiver of nations, not the intimidator. Um, I'll give you a couple of things, you know, you, your presentation of Adam, uh, Satan marching into the garden and Adam just kind of standing there and not saying anything, uh, you know, he was, Adam was given dominion over all the creatures, and he named them all, and so he would have seen the worst of them, you know, 
lions and tigers, grizzly bears, Bigfoot, whatever. And he certainly would have seen a serpent, wouldn't have been afraid of him. And, um, you know, another, another thing I think is telling of, of the deception, not an intimidation, is their response whenever they got in trouble with God was, you know, A.M. says, hey, is that woman you gave me, you know, she, she gave me the fruit. And the woman was saying, oh, it was a serpent, you know, he tricked me into taking it. As opposed to, you know, oh, man, this big old dragon come in here breathing fire and, and claws and fangs and stuff. So, you know, maybe I'm wrong. I just thought I'd pose that to you. And if uh, you could think about that and uh, maybe shoot me an email and tell me what you think of that. Appreciate it. Talk to you later. Bye. Wow, that was a great feedback. Thank you so much. You have really given me another opportunity to talk about what I said before, what is my favorite topic to talk about, to dive deep, especially into these first three chapters. And you know, and I've said this a million times, when I used to be the, a youth uh, minister at my former parish back in New Hampshire, and I used to lead a teenage Bible study. I said the same thing to them, as well as I said it to the, to the middle schoolers. If you ever really want to understand the gospel, you need to understand the first three chapters of this book. If you never read any other chapter, read chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3. If you don't read any other chapter in the entire Bible, make sure you read Genesis chapter 3. That's how important I feel that is. And you know, I'm going to share with you why I feel that Adam is a coward and why I think the Bible supports that. And to do that, I'm going to refer you to a book, my one of my absolute favorite books on the entire planet. It's from Dr. Scott Hahn. I know, of course it's from Dr. Scott Hahn, the biggest Scott Hahn groupie on the, on the earth. I know. I admit I'm guilty. It's true. But what are you going to do? He's just that good. He's that cool. I can't help it. Dr. Scott Hahn wrote a book called A Father Who Keeps His Promises. And he actually signed my copy. He says, To Joe, Romans 8.28. And the day I met him when he signed this, I was a, a, a ball of tears. It was just it was a mess. It was rather embarrassing. But it, what an honor to, to meet him. And it is, my, it is my goal to someday get him on this podcast. I can't wait for that day. But this particular book really helped me out. I, I'll tell you why. I grew up in the Church of Christ, and uh, which is a very, very conservative Protestant denomination. And I can recall as a child uh, into my teenage years, sitting in Sunday school, not having a clue as to why or how the Old Testament fit with the New. It seemed totally devoid of one another. They seemed totally opposite. I was told that Christ came to do something new, and uh, and he did away with all that older, old Jewish stuff. This was all brand new. And I was totally confused. I didn't really understand, you know, so much about the Bible. And when I brought that into my adult years and through my agnostic years, and then as my conversion back not only to Christ but to the Catholic Church, and when Dr. Scott Hahn was introduced to me, I came across this book. And when I started to read it, I couldn't put it down. It was so absolutely breathtaking to read. This really opened my eyes to sacred scripture and helped me to understand that the Bible is one perfect book. That the, the, the Old Testament fits seamlessly with the New Testament. That's how wonderful this is. He, he did such a good job. It was written for his teenage son and his friends. But he also used the book to teach his college students. Highly recommend it. It's called The Father Who Keeps His Promises. And you can pick up your own copy of this book off of my Catholic Hack bookstore. That's www.catholiccompany.com 
forward slash Catholic Hack. That's www.catholiccompany.com forward slash Catholic Hack. And there is a link on my blog if that makes it easier for you. But I want to talk specifically about the third chapter of this book. And this third chapter is entitled Splitting the Atom from Creation to Desecration. And in this book, Dr. Scott Hahn talks about many things, you know, and points that you brought up in your in your wonderful feedback and I'm so thankful that you have done that these are great points to consider I'm so guilty when I used to think of the the narrative in Genesis chapter 1 2 and 3 especially 2 and 3 about Adam and Eve in the garden one I thought it was mythological well the catechism of the catholic church the document from the pope uh, humani generous clearly tell us that we cannot think that way. We have to accept that Adam and Eve were our first parents. This is not a, something that as Catholics we are free to, to, to choose against. And even scientific studies, I, I can't give you the specific reference, but the one that comes to mind is a, a study done, I think, at Baylor University that concluded that all human beings, their DNA came from one person. It could all be narrowed back down to one person. So at any rate... We as Catholics are not free to say that Adam and Eve are mythological characters. Just because the name Adam tells us, it's a Hebrew word, it, it means man or from the ground. But that doesn't mean that this is a, a mythological character. We can't think that way. So this third chapter in A Father Who Keeps His Promises covers a lot of this material. And I'll just go over briefly some of this material. For example... We see in Genesis chapter 2 how God creates man from the dust of the earth, okay? And then he breathes on, on Adam. And we see how here when he's breathing on him, he's not, only in, he's not only giving him his soul, but he's also endowing him with the grace, the grace of the Holy Spirit. Much like at our baptism, much like at our confirmation, you know, these, this is, these are opportunities to encounter the Lord our God in the sacraments. And it's the same thing kind of going on here in Genesis chapter 2 with the creation of Adam. It's the same thing that Jesus does when he encounters the apostles in the upper room. And we just heard this reading this last Sunday. When Jesus sees them, it says, peace be with you. And then he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. This is the same image we're seeing before us. As St. Paul tells us in Romans, this is the new Adam standing before the 12 apostles, breathing on them. What goes on in the mind of those first century Jews in that upper room, our first bishops? What goes on is Genesis chapter 2 and how God this, imbues Adam with his spirit and sends him forth as a son, the son of God. And so we see this image. And then, and throughout all of the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1, at every stage of the creation, God says, and it is good. It's good that he created the earth. It's good that he created the water and the birds and the, the fish and the animals and the vegetation and the light and all that stuff. He always says it's good. At the end of it, he says it's very good. But then after Adam, he realizes he's not alone. And what does he say? It's not good. It's not good that Adam is alone. So what does he do? He takes Adam and he takes him around creation, and Adam names all of the creatures. Now, this is, has been described as a, a Hebrew idiom. You know, 
he's not he's not having to literally name okay that's a lion that's a bear that's a snake okay that's a mouse and we'll call that one a rat we'll call that one over there uh, you know uh, a moccasin he's not doing that what we're seeing here in a sort of a literary style an idiom we see the order the pecking order of things in creation Adam finds, he does not find his equal. God shows us that there are similarities between the animals and the human, but they're not equal. They're not alike. Adam is clearly above all of the created created animals. He is not equal to them. They're not equal to him. He is above them. And that's what we see here. That's what's going on when God takes him around. And then what's he do? He puts him into a deep rest, Adam rests in God, and out of the side of Adam is, is taken the rib, not from the feet, not, you know, that, that Adam might trample over his wife, not from the head that Adam might place his wife up on a pedestal, but from his side that Adam might keep her at his side all of their lives. And what happens when the woman is brought to him? And, and for this, I used to, we used to give talks to the engaged couples, I used to use this to talk about their wedding day. When I was married to my wife, I stood at the altar and my wife was brought to me. And I said, when I saw her, whoa, she is so beautiful. I mean, she was, uh, she was gorgeous. She was, she was just stunning in that dress. It was just, my heart was beating. I couldn't, I was breathing heavy. That's what Adam was doing here. When he says, He says in verse, this is chapter 2, verse 38. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were intimate with one another. They had nothing between them. There were no barriers. They were one. And so that was, it's a critical thing that's going on here. And but before this, you see, God gave Adam some very specific jobs. And Scott Hahn, he, he talks about these jobs and how critical the, these jobs are. You know, he says that, that he is one, a gardener. Yes, that's true. And, and But we see that the, the Hebrew words here, abudah and shamar, are to keep and to protect. Yes, like a gardener, he keeps it. He, he tills the ground. He, he, you know, he, he, he keeps the garden in order. For certain, that's true. Let me just read here from, from uh, page 58 of A Father Who Keeps His Promises. It says, Yahweh started off by explaining Adam's basic duty to till and keep the garden, Genesis 2.15. The tilling part was clear enough, since that's what Adam would naturally expect to do in a garden. But the other word, keep, shamar in Hebrew, carries a distinct meaning, to guard, implying the need to ward off potential intruders. This was how the word was used to describe the task of sword-wielding Levites who were ordered by Moses to keep Israel's sanctuary free of encroachers. See Numbers 17:12 and 8 through 18:6. 
perhaps it struck Adam as a curious command, for it seemed to imply not only a need for the sanctity of the garden to be guarded, but the existence of a potential intruder to desecrate it. Whatever it meant, Adam now had his priestly order to serve guard duty, end quote. Now, again, the, the significance here is Adam had to have understood that he was going to protect the garden. But from what? It obviously implies that there is something to protect the garden from. And furthermore, once he has his wife, he's now responsible to protect his wife as well as the garden. So he's a gardener in a garden to keep and to protect it. And in this, these job tasks, we see not only guard duty, like Dr. Scott Hahn says, but we also see, as Dr. Scott Hahn points out, the, the, the key and the link with the Levites who served at the altar in the sanctuary in the wilderness. So he is, this is a priestly reference. And you know, Dr. Scott Hahn also has a chapter, I think it's the one right before this, chapter 2, where he, he talks of how the Garden of Eden is really like the, the Holy of Holies and the rest of creation is like the rest of the temple. And we compare these, like the, the account when Moses is, is giving out all the orders to create the sanctuary, the tabernacle in the wilderness. We see those in stages, just like the stages of creation in Genesis. And we compare that to how the, the temple is, is erected by Solomon, and we can compare that to also the, the creation narrative. And we see the similarities here, that, we, that God always intended, the, the image is of a reflection of the true holy of holies, the true temple, which is in heaven, which Christ is at right now, perpetually offering up his sacrifice on the cross before the Lord our God, our Father. And so this is a mere shadow of the true Holy of Holies. And so that's what's going on here in Genesis. And, and so Adam is the first, not only son of God, the first man, but he's also the first priest. And his son, by default, will also be priest. And so he's a priest king. He's a, a priestly father with a whole generation of fatherhood of an entire race of people destined to be priests. And that lasts up until the golden calf incident when the Israelites in the wilderness will ruin that when they start to fall back towards the Egyptian god, Molech, and they worship the golden calf. All right, so I've digressed enough on that issue, but we see how he's supposed to keep and protect the garden. Now we move on in, the, in this chapter in A Father Who Keeps His uh, Promises to the two trees. One is the tree of life, which he is allowed to eat from, as well as all the other trees in the garden. There's just one tree he can't eat from. And it sort of offsets like double-entry accounting. You have debits and credits, you know. You can eat from one, but you can't eat from the other. One is the tree of life that keeps in your soul invigorated with divine grace. And one is the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God says, on the day you eat of it, you shall surely die the death. And that's what's important there. That's what you have to pick up on. You see, in English, we don't get that. All we get is you will surely die. But but in Hebrew, it, it's repetitive. It actually says, you shall die the death. And see, when we, we fast forward into the encounter with the serpent, the serpent doesn't repeat that. He, sa he says, surely you will not die. In the Hebrew, he doesn't repeat. He only says it once, where God says it twice. And Dr. Scott Hahn points out that there is a, is a deep meaning going on there. 
On page 59, Scott Hahn says, As far as Adam was concerned, there were two trees of major consequence. The first was the tree of life, which he could eat. The second was the tree of knowledge, which he couldn't. See Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Then God added a very ominous warning. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Verse 17 literally says, you shall die the death, or by death you shall die. The Hebrew word for die occurs twice in the last phrase. This emphatic repetition may imply two particular forms of death, spiritual death versus physical, especially since Adam and Eve did not physically die in the day that they ate the forbidden fruit. But they did die spiritually, like the prodigal son in the parable whose father declared he was once dead, but now he's alive. See Luke 15, 32. So we see here, not only, not only is there the two de- deaths, the, the, the physical and the spiritual and all that, but also the very implication of the day you eat of it, you shall die. They must have known the consequence of death. Adam was not the, the, the ignorant, the, the guy who just was so innocent he didn't know anything. Like a, you know, like a brick wall who doesn't know itself. He knew the consequence of eating it was death. He had to have known what that meant. Or else it would have been meaningless to him. And so we can imply that he did know what the consequence to the action would be, what death really means. And so we can move forward now into the scene of the serpent entering into the garden. We see Adam has received his wife from the side of him, is brought to him, and he says, Woman, wow! He's given the command to keep and protect the garden. He's told not to eat of the, uh, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but he can eat of the tree of life. We see the two trees... Those two trees are significant. I, I always point out the two trees in the passion narrative because it's the recreation of this, this garden. At any rate, so let's now talk about the serpent. Now, as a kid, I always thought of the, the tree serpent, just some innocent little snake who beguiles you know, Eve and, and, and they just eat and, and saw like sort of some mythological fairy tale. But that's really not what's going on, and I'll tell you why. On page 66, Scott Hahn says, The Hebrew word for serpent, nahash, is somewhat ambiguous. It has a wide range of meaning. While it is used most commonly to denote snakes, see Numbers chapter 21, verse 6 through 9, it is also used with reference to evil dragons like Leviathan in Isaiah 27, 1 and the legendary sea monsters, see Job 26.13. Across this wide spectrum of usage, the word generally refers to something that bites, like in Proverbs 23.32, often with venom, see Psalm 58.4. In any event, at minimum, the serpent here is a life-threatening symbol, and it represents a mortal danger. And so, this in in quote there. And so Nahash is not some garden snake. This is a venomous serpent at a bare minimum. Now, I did mention on the last uh, podcast on this topic about the Targums. Now, the Targums are the oral tradition of the Jews that were in use at the time of Christ. And if you go back and read the Targums, and there's a link on my blog that will get you there, you can, you can see how in Genesis chapter 3, the Nahash who enters the, the garden has legs. He walks in. 
he crawls out, but he walks in. God removes those legs and his judgment, and he crawls out, but he walks in. So this was a this was a crawling creature, a very intimidating creature. This is much like the the uh, the the dragon, the sea monster in Isaiah in in Job. But we can also compare this to the the ancient serpent of Revelations 12:9 or 22 that identifies Satan himself as a dragon. So this is not some mere small creature. And we have to go back in to well, didn't Adam see all the creatures? Well, that was a Hebrew idiom to establish the order, to find that in no animal creature on that God created did we find the equal to Adam. This That led us into the, the taking of the rib of Adam from his side to create woman. That was his equal. That's what God you know, wanted to point out in that. Not that he literally had to name all the creatures. So he may or may not have seen all the creatures. And he may have seen all all these nasty, monstrous creatures. It doesn't say whether or not he wasn't scared of all the creatures. It doesn't tell us either way. We just simply don't know. But we can see from not only the text, the word Nahash, its usage, not only in Old Testament, but more keenly as it references the dragon in the New Testament. And it tells us specifically, this is the ancient serpent this is Satan himself. This is what we would have seen in the Genesis narrative. So this is an intimidating creature, a venomous creature with fangs, with bites. This was a personal attack. Just, you know, if we were to see a rattlesnake or a cobra, even that little, that, that, that insignificant creature, when you compare it to a leviathan or a monster or a dragon, even that creature is very intimidating. I don't know too many people who, uh, who aren't scared of a venomous, poisonous snake. I mean, heck, most people are scared of spiders, let alone rattlesnakes or cobras. So even if all we said was it was a cobra or a rattlesnake, it's still a scary monster <laughs> facing us, confronting us. It's still intimidating us. We would be intimidated even by that, let alone a leviathan, a sea monster or a dragon, specifically the dragon of Revelations. And so that's why the Nahash is very significant. It's not the garden snake that's in our minds from those kids' Bibles and from Sunday school that of our youth. We have to get that out of there and start thinking Nahash, the bully of the garden. Now, the next issue we need to look at is whether or not Adam was present when Eve was doing all the talking. See, that's significant. Adam didn't say a word, and Eve did all the talking in a garden by a tree. Unlike in the Passion narrative, when it's Christ who does all the talking, he is not quiet. He is screaming out to the Lord. Hebrews tells us with loud cries and lamentations, he cried out to the one who could save him. And from the cross, it's Christ who speaks, who's hanging on the tree of life. And it's our blessed lady who is the new Eve. The truly the mother of all the living because she, Theotokos, she bore Christ to the world. She says nothing at the foot of the tree. And Adam, the new Adam, Christ Jesus, says all, he does all the talking. And so here in Genesis, it's, it's Adam who's silent and it's Eve who does all the talking. But the question is, was Adam present? Was he standing next to her when she was confronted with Nahash? Can we conclude that 
from his silence. So that's what Dr. Scott Hahn talks about here, starting off on page 67. He says, quote, The serpent only addressed Eve throughout, but not because Adam wasn't present. In fact, the serpent's use of Hebrew verbs in the second person plural indicates that Adam was right there all along. By going straight to Eve, Satan was deliberately bypassing the familial structure established by God. So what, what Dr. Scott Hahn is saying here, and this is great, this is why it's, it's, so, uh, it's so great to be here in the great, the great republic, the great kingdom of Texas, that's right, because we have a special, we have a special way of referring to a group of people. If there are more than one person in front of us, we'll say, howdy, y'all. That's right. It's the plural form of you. We're saying you, but to the whole group, so it's y'all. You all, y'all. It's kind of the same thing that, that, that Nahash was doing here in the Garden of Eden. He's using the sort of the same Hebrew verbs. He's basically saying y'all. He's speaking to both of them. They're both present. And that's what Dr. Scott Hahn points out. Adam is standing there all along. He's just silent. Now, remember, his job was to what? To protect against an intruder. Well, quite clearly, this was an intruder. Even if it was the size of a cobra or rattlesnake, still an intruder, still his job to protect. And what does he do? He stands there silent. Eve does all the talking. Satan is referring to both of them. Look here, y'all. And I kind of had this image of the dragon looking down upon them. Y'all putting his finger, like a big bully putting his finger in their face. And Adam is just standing there quiet. And so, this, and so the Nahash, the Satan here, does a couple of very tricky things. He says, you know, first of all, he, he switches from using God's proper name, Yahweh, to Elohim. It's like saying, you know, God is father or God is creator. Well, to refer to God as creator, it, it still works, but that's sort of his job. You know, that's not who he is. Who he is is father. So as his children, to refer to him as Yahweh would be much more proper than to refer to him as, okay, you're the creator, Elohim. So that's the first subtle thing that goes on. Because not only does Satan not refer to him as Yahweh, and Dr. Scott Hahn, you know, sort of speculates that maybe he didn't even have the authority to refer to him as Yahweh. Who knows? But he didn't. He refers to him as Elohim. Eve now begins to refer to him as Elohim. That's the trick. The other thing that Satan does here that's kind of tricky is he says, did God say you shall not eat of any of the tree in the garden? He changes a positive to a negative. He sort of twists it around just, just subtly because God was very positive about telling Adam and Eve that they could eat of any of the trees of the garden. There was only just one that they couldn't eat and on the day that they did, that they would surely die the death. Remember, he repeats it twice. But he was positive. He was upbeat about it. And Satan twists that to be a very negative thing. Did God say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? I mean, see how he just sort of twisted that? So he's changing the name of God. He's twisting his words subtly. And Adam is not there. I mean, he's there, but he's not defending. You know, he's not stepping up. He's not standing in the gap between this Nahash, this serpent, this dragon, and, and Eve and the garden, whom his job is to protect it, you know, and even lay down his life. 
So let's read the account just to, just to see it all together in one place. Starting at uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that there the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Now, let's go back a little bit, because notice that when Eve responds to Satan at first, you know, about eating of the tree in the garden, she sort of adds something to the prohibition that that God never even said. You know, she said that, you know, she couldn't even touch it. And she says, and that's verse 3, But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. She adds touch it. God didn't say touch it, but she adds touch it. So what's going on there? We can clearly infer from this that she's sort of stammering and stuttering a bit here. She's a little nervous about what's going on. Well, she's left to defend herself against this. She's having to do all the talking here because Adam, who's standing next to her, says nothing. And then Satan says, Surely you will not die. Now hold on. In Hebrew, he's only saying die once. And we already talked about how God in Genesis 2 repeated it. He said die the death. And we talked about we talked about how Dr. Scott Hahn points out that there's two deaths inferred in this. One is physical and one is spiritual. But Satan only refers to one of them. Surely you will not die. He's referring to the physical. Because clearly they ate the fruit and clearly they did not die. Although, as a side note, a sidebar only, Adam lived to be 900 some years old. Have we not heard that a day to God is a thousand, a thousand years and a thousand years a day? Hey, just saying, it's kind of a neat coincidence that within God's, you know, biblical time, you know, Adam lives, dies on the same day. I don't know, just a interesting anecdote. That's all. Take it for whatever it's worth. At any rate, he, Satan, Nahash, is referring to the physical death. He's not referring to the spiritual death. Whereas God in Genesis 2 by died the death was referring to the spiritual death. There is a choice here. You save your skin or you save your soul. Adam, who knew the consequence of death, we talked about that too, he would have had to have known the consequence of death in order to understand the job he was given by God to keep and protect it from intruders. And so he chooses to save his skin but give up his soul, which is why we see God protecting the way to the tree of life with a fiery sword, because he doesn't want them to eat from the tree of life and live forever in their sins. Dr. Scott Hahn goes on to talk on page 69 at the bottom under doing what comes preternaturally. He says, this alone explains Adam's silence as the strategy of the serpent became clearer. 
Adam had to make a dreadful choice. Would he stand up for his bride by engaging the diabolical serpent in mortal combat, or would he try to cling to his cherished estate in Eden with its many delights such as earthly dominion, immortality, impassibility, and integrity? Does Adam, end quote there, but does Adam save his flesh or save his soul? And Dr. Hahn goes on to list out 10 reasons why Adam ultimately chose to save his flesh, his backside, and not his soul. And just like Christ, who in a garden screams out to God, is faced with the same choice. Does he save his flesh or does he save not only his soul, but our souls? He chooses our souls. He puts his trust in the resurrection of God by going to the cross and dying, by facing the great serpent. And Adam had that choice and he chose to give up his soul and keep his backside. And even Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 10, Fear not the one who can kill just the body. Rather, fear the one who can kill both body and soul and toss it into the fires of Gehenna. This is exactly, that sums up out of Jesus' own mouth in Matthew chapter 10. That basically summarizes what we've been talking about here. That Adam had a choice. Die the death, save his soul, or just die, save his flesh. Jesus says, don't fear the one who can kill the die, but fear the one who can kill the die the death. Don't fear the one who can kill just the body. That's Satan. He can only kill your body. But fear the one who can take both your body and your soul and throw it in the fires of hell. That's exactly what was going on here in the garden. So there was a physical action. There was a physical uh, bullying going on. There was a, a, an intimidation and a physical presence. presence. The Nahash wasn't some simple snake. Adam wasn't just not there at the time. He was quite clearly standing next to Eve there the whole time, given a choice, and he chose not to speak, not to defend, not to do what God told him to do in Genesis 2, which was to keep and protect Shamar, the Hebrew word Shamar, to protect the garden, just like the Levites with their swords, to attack the intruders, to protect, even at the cost of their own lives. Adam should have trusted in the resurrection of God. Adam should have trusted that God would have resurrected him even if it cost him his life to protect the garden and to protect his wife. And he chose not to do it. So those are the nutshells of why I believe Adam to be the coward. Because we can go on to talk and get into great explanation about what goes on after this. How God walks in the cool of the day. And how that's a prefigurement of Christ. And how really that's a foreshadowing to the confession the sacrament of reconciliation that the church now holds dear from Christ coming to the apostles in the upper room, breathing on them like God did to Adam and sending them off to forgive sins. But I've already done a podcast and all that, and you can check that out. That was uh, very early on. I think it's uh, podcast number three, I think. But you can download that off my blog at www.catholichack.com and check all that out. So I hope I've been able to consider all the points that you've brought up, and I'm so very thankful that you did. Those are fantastic points to be able to talk about, to be able to consider, for us to see that we are to trust in the resurrection of God, not to fear the one who can physically kill us, but it's our souls that have so much more value, so much more weight, so much more of our consideration that we must put our trust in God, and we must cling 
to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in the sixth chapter of John's Gospel, he says, You must eat my body and drink my blood, if you were to have life within you, that I may raise you up on the last day. Let us trust in the resurrection of our Lord by going to the tree of life and eating of its fruit, the very fruit of the womb of our Blessed Lady, the new Eve, the mother of us all. Let's eat his body and drink his blood. Let's have life within us that we might be raised up on the last day. Let us be courageous, unlike our first parents. Let us be courageous. Well, there you have it. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. I hope this episode has done you some good. And I really want to thank you once again for your feedback and your great support of this podcast. It has been truly overwhelming. I wish I knew the name of the caller who left me that. All I know is you're from Wisconsin. Unfortunately, you didn't leave me your name or or I didn't receive an email, so I have no way of getting back to you. So I hope you're listening to this, and I would really appreciate if you send me another email just so I could uh, thank you appropriately. I really did enjoy your, your feedback, and I enjoyed another opportunity to talk about that. Once again, I want you all to go by the Catholic Hack bookstore and pick up your copy of A Father Who Keeps His Promises by Dr. Scott Hahn. You can do that at www.catholiccompany.com forward slash Catholic Hack. Also, stop by the blog www.catholichack.com and there you can get in touch with Facebook, email, voicemail, Twitter. Many of you are following me on Twitter now, so that's very cool. Please continue to do that. Join the Facebook group, The Catholic Hack, and there I'll send you some uh, messages, keep you up to date about what's going on. Also, I have yet another opportunity to give out another great Catholic Hack t-shirt. Brad from Indiana was the winner last month, and Brad, your t-shirt is on the way to you. I definitely want a picture when you when you get that. I would really love to see that. And Brad, I've been praying for you. I know you've been undergoing that that uh, that special treatment for your, your cancer, which has been in remission. So I'm praying to God that that is, uh, will continue to be in remission. So please keep me up to date with that. But for the rest of you, I would really love to give out another Catholic Hack t-shirt for free. Here's what I want to see this month. This month, I want to see you send out an email to all of your friends asking them to check out the Catholic Hack Podcast, to subscribe via iTunes, and to leave me a review on iTunes. The listener who sends the email to the most people promoting the Catholic Hack Podcast, asking them to subscribe via iTunes and leave reviews on iTunes, will win a free Catholic Hack t-shirt. So we're talking 30 seconds of your time to blast an email to your email group. Now, whoever has the biggest group, whoever has the most recipients on the email wins. You need to copy me on the email so that I know it's gone out, so that I can count the number of people, and so that I can tell you who's won the contest. So I want to do this, let's say, over the next two weeks. Over the next two weeks, I like to see this email go out, and I want you to copy me on it so that I can keep track. So please, that would be a huge help, a huge way to support this podcast. That would be wonderful. So thanks in advance for that. Well, I'm praying for you, and I pray that you pray for me. And until next time, I'm going to pray that God richly bless you. God bless. SQPN, the best in Catholic podcasting.